my unicorns, dragons, demons, and trolls. It's your girl, Dark Pegasus, here. And I took a small hiatus, not because of any, like, mental drain or anything like that. I had some life things come up. I was working and had to deal with family. So, with that being said, I'm going to be reading today, as usual. We are back with our book, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. If you have not listened to the other episodes, I would recommend going back and listening to those or going back and reading um, the book. Again, I'm going to let you guys know that there are trigger warnings in this book. There are political situations that may relate to life situations that are happening right now. We're not going to get into that. We're just trying to figure out what happened to our witch and how she grew up. So, with that being said, let's get into it. Section 2, Gillikin. First chapter, Galinda. Whitaka, Sedica, Wickeson Turning, Red Sand, Dixie House. Change at Dixie House for shiz. Stay aboard this coach for all points east. Tennekin, Brock's Hall, and all destinations to Trom. The conductor paused to catch his breath. Next stop, Whitaka. Whitaka next. Galinda clutched her parcel close to her breast. The old goat who sprawled on the seat across from her was missing the Whitaka stop. She was glad that trains made passengers sleepy. She didn't want to keep avoiding his eye. At the last minute before she was to board the train, her minder, I'm a clutch, had stepped on a rusty nail and, terrified of the frozen face syndrome, had begged permission to go to the nearest surgery for medicines and calming spells. I can surely get myself to shiz alone, Galinda had said coldly. Don't bother with me, Alma Clutch. And Alma Clutch hadn't. Galinda hoped that Alma Clutch would suffer a little frozenness of jaw before being well enough to show up at shiz and chaperone Galinda through whatever was to come. Her own chin was set, she believed, to imply a worldly boredom with train travel. In fact, she had never been more than a day's carriage ride away from her family home in the little market town of Fratica. The railway line, laid down a decade ago, had meant the old dairy farms were being cut up for country estates for the merchants and manufacturers of shiz. But Galinda's family continued to prefer rural Gillikin, with its fox haunts and dripping dells, its secluded ancient pagan temples to Lurline. To them, shiz was a distant urban threat, and even the convenience of rail transportation hadn't tempted them to risk all its complications, curiosities, and evil ways. Galinda didn't see the verdant world through the glass of the carriage. She saw her own reflection instead. She had the nearsightedness of youth. She reasoned that because she was beautiful, she was significant, though what she signified, and to whom, was not clear to her yet. The sway of her head made her creamy ringlets swing, catching the light, like so many jocelyn stacks of coins. Her lips were perfect, as pouted as opening Maya flower, and colored as brilliantly red. Her green traveling gown with its inset panels of ochre must it suggested wealth, while the black shawl draping just so about the shoulders was a nod to her academic inclinations. She was, after all, on her way to shiz because she was smart. But there was more than one way to be smart. She was seventeen. The whole town of Fradica had seen her off, the first girl from the Pertha Hills to be accepted at Shiz. She had written well in the entrance exams 
a meditation of learning ethics from the natural world. Do flowers regret being plucked for a bouquet? Do the rains practice abstinence? Can animals really choose to be good? Or a moral philosophy of springtime? She had quoted Cecily from the Asiad, and her rapturous prose had captivated the Board of Examiners, a three-year fellowship to Craig Hall. It wasn't one of the better colleges, those were still closed to female students, but it was Shiz University. Her companion in the compartment waking up when the conductor came back through stretched his heels as he yawned. Would you be so kind as to reach my ticket? It's in the overhead, he said. Galinda stood and found the ticket, aware that the bearded old thing was eyeing her comely figure. Here you are, she said, and he answered, Not to me, dearie, to the conductor. Without opposable thumbs, I have no hope of managing such a tiny piece of cardboard. The conductor punched the ticket and said, You're the rare beast that can afford to travel first class. Oh, said the goat, I object to the term beast, but the law is still allowing my travel in first class, I presume. Money's money, said the conductor, without ill will, punching Galinda's ticket and returning it to her. No, money's not money, said the goat. Not when my ticket costs double what the young ladies did. In this case, money is a visa. I happen to have it. Going up to shiz, are you? said the conductor to Galinda, ignoring the goat's remark. I can tell by the academic show. Oh, well, it's something to do, said Galinda. She didn't care to talk to conductors, but when he continued along down the carriage, Galinda found that she liked even less the baleful look that the goat was giving her. Do you expect to learn anything at shiz, he asked. I've already learned not to speak to strangers. Then I won't introduce myself, and will not be strangers no longer. I am Dillamond. I am disinclined to know you. I'm a fellow of Shiz University on the Faculty of Biological Arts. You are a shabby dresser even for a goat, Galinda thought. Money isn't everything. Then I must overcome my natural shyness. My name is Galinda. I am of the Aduena clan on my mother's side. Let me be the first to welcome you to Shiz, Glinda. This is your first year? Please, it is Galinda. The proper old Gillikinese pronunciation, if you don't mind. She could not bring herself to call him Sir, not with that horrid goatee and the tatty waistcoat that looked cut from some public house carpet. I wonder what you think of the wizard's proposed bans on travel. The goat's eyes were buttery and warm and frightening. Galinda had never heard of any bans. She said it as much. Dillamon, was it Dr. Dillamon? Explained in a conversational tone that the wizard had thought had thoughts of restricting animal travel on public conveniences except in designated transports. Galinda replied that animals had always enjoyed separate services. No, I am speaking of animals, said Dillamont, those with a spirit. Oh, those, said Galinda cruelly. Well, I don't see the problem. My, my, said Dillamont, don't you indeed? The goatee quivered. He was irritated. He began to hector her about animal rights. As things now stood, his own ancient mother couldn't afford to travel first class and would have to ride in a pin when she wanted to visit him in Shiz. Seeing her fright at the size and bustle of the terminus at Shiz, Dillamon took pity and offered to engage a carriage to take her to Craig Hall. She followed him, looking as unmortified as she could manage. Her luggage came behind on the backs of a couple of porters. Shiz. She tried not to gop, everyone hustling on business, laughing and hurrying and kissing, dodging carriages, while the buildings of Railway Square, brownstone and bluestone, and covered with vine and moss, 
steamed softly in the sunlight. The animals and the animals. She had scarcely ever come across even the odd chicken squawking philosophically in Fratica, but here was a quartet of Tespras, an outdoor cafe, dressed flashily in black and white satin stripes on the bias to their inborn design, and an elephant on its hind legs directing traffic, and a tiger dressed up in some sort of exotic religious garb, a kind of monk or modern nun or something. Yes, yes, it was a Tespra, an elephant and a tiger, and she supposed goat. She would have to get used to enunciating the capital letters, or else she would show off her country origins. Mercifully, Dillamon found her a carriage with a human driver, and directed him to Craig Hall, and paid him in advance, for which Galinda had come up with a weak smile of appreciation. Our pass will cross again, said Dillamon, gallantly if curtly, as if putting forth a prophecy, and he disappeared as the carriage jolted forward. Galinda sank back into the cushion. She began to be sorry for Alma Clutch had punctured her foot with a nail. Craig Hall was only twenty minutes from where from Railway Square. Behind its own blue stone walls, the complex was set with large watery glass windows in lancet formation, a tessellation of quarterfuls, and blind multifolds ran riot at the roof line. The appreciation of architecture was Glinda's private passion and she poured over the features she could identify, although the vines and flat moss fudged many of the finer details of the buildings. Too soon she was whisked inside. The headmistress of Craig Hall, a fish-faced upper-class Gillikinese woman wearing a lot of cloisson bangles, was greeting new arrivals in the atrium. The head eschewed the drabness of professional woman's dress that Galinda had expected. Instead, the imposing woman was bedecked in a current-colored gown with patterns of black jet swirl over the bodice like dynamic markings on sheet music. I am Madame Morrible, she said to Galinda. Her voice was basso profundo, her grip crippling, her posture military, her earrings like holiday tree ornaments, flourishes all around, and a quick cup of tea in the parlor, then we'll assemble in the main hall and sort you out as to your roomies. The parlor was filled with pretty young women, all wearing green or blue, and trailing black shawls like exhausted shadows behind them. Galinda was glad for the natural advantages of her flaxen hair, and stood by a window so the light could dazzle itself off her curls. She hardly sipped the tea. In a side room, the attendant Amis were serving themselves from a metal urn, and laughing and yakking already as if they were old friends from the same village. It was somewhat grotesque, all those dumpy women smiling at each other, making marketplace noise. Galinda had read the fine print very closely. She hadn't realized there would be a need for roomies. Or perhaps had her parents paid extra so she could have a private room. And where would Alma Clutch stay? Looking about her, she could tell that some of the dollies came from families much better off than hers. The pearls and the diamonds on them. Galinda was glad she had chosen a simple silver collar with Mennonite struts. There was something vulgar about traveling and jewels. As she realized this truth, she codified it into a saying. At the earliest perfect opportunity, she would bring it out as proof of her having opinions and of having traveled. The overdressed traveler betrays more interest in being seen than in seeing, she murmured, trying it out, while the true traveler knows that novel world about her serves as the most appropriate accessory. Good, very good. Madame Morrible counted heads, gripped a cup of tea, and shooed everyone into the main hall. There, 
Galinda learned that allowing Alma Clutch to go looking for a surgery had been a colossal mistake. Apparently all that chatter among Amas hadn't been frivolous and social. They had been instructed to sort out among them whose young lady would room with whose. The Amas had been relied upon to get to the nub of the matter more quickly than the students themselves. No one had spoken for Galinda. She had gone unrepresented. After the forgettable welcome remarks, as coupled by couple, the students and Amas left to locate their lodgings and settle in. Glinda found herself growing pale with embarrassment. Alma Clutch, the old fool, would have fixed her up nicely with someone just a notch or two above on the social ladder. Near enough that Glinda would suffer no shame and above enough to make it worth the while of socializing. But now all the better young misses were linked together. Diamond to diamond, emerald to emerald, for all she could tell. As the room began to empty, Galinda wondered if she shouldn't go up and interrupt Madame Morrible and explain the problem. Galinda was, after all, an Arduena of the Uplands, at least on one side. It was a hideous accident. Her eyes teared up. But she hadn't the nerve. She stayed perched on the edge of the fragile, stupid chair, except for her. All the center of the room had cleared out now, and the shyer, more useless girls were left around the edges in the shadows. Surrounded by an obstacle course, of empty gilded chairs, Galinda alone sat like an unclaimed valis. Now, the rest of you are here without Amas, I understand, said Madame Morrible a bit stiffly. Since we require chaperone, I will assign each of you to one of the three dormitories for freshers, which sleep fifteen girls each. There is no social stigma to the dormitory, I might add, none at all. But she was lying, and not even convincingly. Please, Madame Morrible, there is a mistake. I am Galinda of the Arduenas. My Alma took a nail in the foot on the voyage, and she was detained for a day or two. I am not in the dormitory class, you see. How sad for you, said Madame Morrible, smiling. I'm sure your Alma will be pleased to be a chaperone in, shall we say, the pink dormitory, fourth floor on the right. No, no, she would not, interrupted Galinda quite bravely. I am not here to sleep in a dormitory, pink or otherwise. You have misunderstood. I have not misunderstood, Miss Galinda, said Madame Morble, growing even more fish-like as her eyes began to bulge. There is an accident. There is tardiness. There are decisions to be made. As you are not equipped through your alma to make your own decision, I am empowered to make it for you. Please, we are busy, and I must name the other girls who will join you in the pink dormitory. I would have a private word with you, madam, said Galinda in desperation. For myself, dormitory partners, or a single roomie, it is no matter, but I cannot recommend that you ask my alma to oversee other girls for reasons I may not say in public. She was lying as fast as she could, and better than Madame Morrible, who seemed at least intrigued. You strike me as an impertinent, Miss Galinda, she said mildly. I have not yet struck you, Madame Morrible, Galinda delivered the daring line with her sweetest smile. Madame Morble chose to laugh. Think, Loreline. A spark of spunk. You may come to my chambers this evening and tell me the story of your Alma shortcomings, as I should know them. But I will compromise with you, Miss Galinda, unless you object. I will have to ask your Alma to chaperone both you and another girl, one who comes without an Alma. For you see, all the other students with Almas are already paired off, and you are the odd one out. I am certain my Alma would manage that at least. Madame Morble scanned the page of names and said, Very well. To join Miss Galinda of the Arduinus in a double room, shall I invite the throp third descending of Nest Harding's Elphaba? No one stirred. Elphaba, said Madame Morble again, adjusting her bangles and pressing two fingers to the bottom of her throat. The girl was in the back of the room, a pauper in a red dress with gaudy fretwork and in clumpy old people's boots. 
At first, Galinda thought what she was some trick of the light, a reflection of the adjacent buildings covered in vines and flat moss. But as Alphaba moved forward, lugging her own carpet bags, it became obvious that she was green. A hatchet-faced girl with putrescent green skin and long, foreign-looking black hair. A munchkinlander by birth, though with many childhood years spent in quadling country, read Madame Morble from her notes. How fascinating for us all, Miss Alphaba. We shall look forward to hearing tales of exotic climes and times. Miss Galinda and Miss Alphaba, here are your keys. You may take room 22 on the second floor. She smiled broadly at Galinda as the girls came forward. Travel is so broadening, she intoned. Galinda started the curse of her own words lobbed back at her. She curtsied and fled, Alphaba's eyes on the floor followed behind her. 2. By the time Alma Clutch arrived the next day, her foot vanished to three times its natural size. Alphaba had already unpacked her few belongings. They hung rag-like on hooks in the cupboard, thin, shapeless shifts, shamed into a corner by the fulsome hoops and starched bustles and padded shoulders and cushioned elbows of Galinda's wardrobe. I am happy as cheese to be your Alma, too. Doesn't matter to me, said Alma Clutch, smiling broadly in Alphaba's direction, before Galinda had a chance to get Alma Clutch alone and demand that her minder refuse. Of course, my papa is paying you to be my Alma, said Galinda meaningfully, but Alma Clutch answered, not as much as all that, Ducky, not as much as all that. I can be making up my own mind. Alma, said Galinda when Alphaba had left to use the mildewy facilities. Alma, are you blind? That munchkinlinder girl is green. Odd, isn't it? I thought all munchkinlinders were tiny. She's a proper height, though. I guess they come in a variety of sizes. Oh, are you bothered by the green? Well, it might do you some good if you let it. If you let it. You affected worldly airs, Galinda, but... You don't know the world yet. I think it's a lark. Why not? Why ever not? It's not yours to organize my education, worldly or otherwise, Alma Clutch. No, my dear, said Alma Clutch. You made this mess all by your lonesome. I'm merely being of service. So, Galinda was stuck. Last night's brief interview with Madame Morble had not proved any escape route either. Galinda had arrived promptly in a dotted morphlin skirt with lace bodice, a vision, as she said to herself, in nocturnal purples and midnight blues. Madame Morble bade her enter the reception room, in which a small cluster of leather chairs had a settee where drawn, were drawn up before an unnecessary fire. The head poured mint tea and offered crystallized ginger wrap in pearl fruit leaves. She indicated a chair for Galinda, but herself stood by the mantelpiece like a big game hunter. Madame Morble was fish-like, not merely in countenance, but in dress. Her loose-fitting cream foxhole flowed like a huge airy bladder from the high-frilled neckline to the knees, where it was tightly gathered and dropped straight to the floor hugged the calves and ankles in neat anticlimactic pleats she looked for all the world like a giant carp in a men's club and a dull bored carp at that not even a sentient carp now your alma my dear the reason she is incapable of supervising a dormitory i'm all ears galinda had taken all afternoon to prepare you see madam head I didn't like to say it publicly, but Alma Clutch suffered a terrible fall last summer when we were picnicking in the Pertha Hills. She reached for a handful of wild mountain thyme and went pitching over a cliff. She lay for weeks in a coma, and when she emerged, she had no memory of the accident at all. If you ask her about it, she wouldn't even know what you meant, amnesia by trauma. 
I see. How very tiresome for you. But why does this make her unequal to the job I proposed? She has become adult, Alma Clutch. On occasion gets confused as to what has life and what doesn't. She will sit and talk to, oh, say, a chair, and then relate its history back to us. Its aspirations, its reservations, its joys, its sorrows, said Madame Marble. How truly novel. The emotional life of furniture, I never. But silly as this is, and a cause for hours of merriment, the corollary ailment is more alarming, Madame Marble. I must tell you that Alma Clutch sometimes forgets that people are alive, or animals. Galinda paused and added, or animals even go on my dear is it all right for me because alma has been my alma all my life and i know her i know her ways but she can sometimes forget a person is there or needs her or is a person once she cleaned a wardrobe and tipped it over onto the houseboy breaking his back she didn't register his screaming right there right at her feet she folded the night clothes and had a conversation with my mother's evening gown asking it all sorts of impertinent questions "'What a fascinating condition,' said Madame Marble. "'And how vexing for you, really.' "'I couldn't have allowed her to accept responsibility for fourteen other girls,' Galinda confided. "'For me alone, there is no problem. I love the foolish old woman, in a way.' Madame Marble had said, "'But what of your roomie? Can you jeopardize her well-being?' "'I didn't ask for her.' Galinda looked ahead in her glaze, unblinking eye. "'The poor munch Galinda appears to be used to a life of distress. "'Either she will adjust, or I assume she'll—' petition you to be removed from my room unless of course you feel it your duty to move her for her own safety madame marble said galinda struggled to maintain her autonomy but she was only seventeen and she had suffered the same indignity of exclusion in the main hall just hours ago she didn't know what madame marble could have against her except the looks of her but there was something there was clearly something what was it she sensed it to be wrong somehow "'Don't you think, dear?' said Madame Marble, bowing a bit forward like a fish arching in a slow-motion leap. "'Well, of course, we must do what we can,' said Galinda, as vaguely as possible. But she seemed the fish and caught on a most clever hook. Out of the shadows of the reception room came a small tick-tock thing, about three feet high, made of burnished bronze, with an identifying plate screwed into its front. The plate said, "'Smith and Tinker Mechanical Man,' an ornate script." The clockwork servant collected the empty teacups and whirred itself away. Galinda didn't know how long it had been there or what it had heard, but she had never liked TikTok creatures. Elphaba had a bad case of what Galinda called the reading sulks. Elphaba didn't curl up. She was too bony to curl, but she jackknifed herself nearer to herself, her funny pointed green nose poking in the moldy leaves of a book. She played with her hair while she read coiling it up and down around fingers so thin and twig-like as to seem almost exoskeletal. Her hair never curled, no matter how often Elphaba twinged it around her finger. Shen Shen Just as in children's books about boarding school, each new friend was wealthier than the one before. At first, Galinda didn't mention who her roomie was, and Elphaba showed no sign of expecting Galinda's company, which was a relief. But the gossip had to start sooner or later. The first wave of discussion about Alphabus concerned her wardrobe and her evident poverty, as if her classmates were above noticing her silky and sickening color. Someone told me that Madame Head had said Miss Alphabus was. Someone told me that Madame Head 
had said Miss Elphaba was the throp third descending from Nest Harding, said Fanny, who was also a munchkinlander, but one of diminutive stock, not full size like the throp family. The throps are highly regarded in Nest Hardings and even beyond. The eminent throp put together the area's militia and tore up the yellow brick road that Ozma Regent had been laying in when we were all small, before the glorious revolution. There was no callousness in the eminent throp or his wife or family, including his granddaughter, Milena. You can be assured. By callousness, of course, Fanny meant greenness. But how the mighty have fallen, she is as ragged as a gypsy, observed Milla. Have you ever seen such tawdy dress? Her alma should be sacked. She has no alma, I think, said Shen Shen. Galinda, who knew for sure, said nothing. They said she had spent time in quadling country, Milla went on. Perhaps her family had been exiled as criminals. Then where's the wealth, snapped Mila. Speculators and rubies did very well, Miss Shen Shen. Our Miss Elphaba doesn't have two barter tokens to rub together or call her own. Perhaps it's kind of a religious calling, or chosen poverty, suggested Fanny. And at that nonsense, they all threw back their heads and chortled. Elphaba coming into the buttery for a cup of coffee caused them to escalate into louder roars of laughter. Elphaba did not look over at them, but every other student did glance their way, each girl longing to be included in the jollity which made the fourth new friends feel just fine. Galinda was slow coming to terms with actual learning. She had considered her admission into Shiz as a sort of testimony to her brilliance, and believed that she would adorn the halls of learning with her beauty and occasional clever sayings. She supposed, glumly, that she had meant to be a sort of living marble bust. This is youthful intelligence. Admire her. Isn't she lovely? It hadn't actually dawned on Glinda that there were more to learn, and furthermore that she had expected to It hadn't actually dawned on Glinda that there was more to learn, and furthermore that she was expected to do it. The education of all the new girls chiefly wanted, of course, had nothing to do with Madame Morrible or the prattling animals at lecterns and on diocese. What the girls wanted wasn't equations or quotations or orations. They wanted shiz itself, city life, the broad, offensive panoply of life and life, seamless intertwined. Galinda was relieved that Elphaba never took part in the audience that Amas organized, since they often stopped at a lunchroom for a modest meal. The weekly brigade became known informally as the Chowder and Marching Society. The university district was aflame with autumn color, not just of dying leaves, but also of fraternity pennants fluttering from rooftop and spire. Galinda soaked up the architecture of shiz, here and there mostly in protected college yards and side streets. The oldest surviving domestic architecture still leaned, ancient wattle and daub, an exposed stud framing held up like paralytic grannies by stronger, newer relatives on either side. Then, in dizzying succession, unparalleled glories. Bloodstone medieval, mirthic, both least and the most fantastical late, Galantine with its symmetries and restraint, Galantine reform with all those festering ogies and broken pediments, bluestone revival, imperial bombast and industrial modern, or, as the critics in the liberal press put it, high hostile crude style, the form propagated by the modernity minded Wizard of Oz. 
Besides architecture, the excitement was tame, to be sure. On one notable occasion, which no Craig Hall girl present ever forgot, the senior boys from Three Queens College across the canal. For a lark and a dare had tanked themselves up a beer in the middle of the afternoon, had hired a white bear violinist, and had gone down to dance together under willow trees, wearing nothing but their clinging cotton drawers and their school scars. It was deliciously pagan, and they had set an old chip statue of Lurline, the fairy queen, on a three-legged stool, and she seemed to smile at their loose-limbed gaiety. The girls and the amas pretended shock, but poorly they lingered, watching until horrified proctors from three queens came rushing out to round the revelers up. Near nudity was one thing, but public luralism, even as a joke, bordered on being intolerable, retrograde, even royalist, and that did not do in the wizard's reign. One Saturday evening, when the Amas had a rare night off and had taken themselves into a pleasure faith meeting in Ticknor Circus, Galinda had a brief and silly squabble with Fanny and Shen Shen, after which she retired early to her bedchamber, complaining of a headache. Elphaba was sitting up in her bed with the commissary brown blanket tucked around her. She was hunched forward over a book, as usual, and her hair hung down like brackets on either side of her face. She looked at Galinda like one of those etchings. The natural history books were full of them of odd, winky mountain women who hide their strangeness with a shawl ever over their head. Alphaba was munching on the pips of an apple, having eaten all the rest of it. Well, you look cozy enough, Miss Alphaba said Galinda challengingly. In three months, it was the first social mark she had managed to make to her roomie. Looks are only looks, said Alphaba, not looking up. Will it break your concentration if I sit in front of the fire? You cast a shadow if you sit just there. Oh, sorry, said Galinda, and moved. Mustn't cast shadows, must we? When urgent words are waiting to be read. Alpha was back in her book already and didn't answer. What the dickens are you reading night and day? It seemed as if Alpha were coming up for air from a still isolated pool. While I don't read the same thing every day, you know, tonight I am reading some of the speeches of the early Unionist fathers. Why ever would anyone want to do that? I don't know. I don't even know if I want to read them. I'm just reading them. But why, Miss Elphaba the Delirious? Why, why? Elphaba looked up at Galinda and smiled. Elphaba the Delirious. I like it. Before she had a chance to bite it back, Galinda returned the smile, and at the same time, a sweeping wind set a handful of hail against the glass, and the latch broke. Galinda leaped to swing the casement shut, but Elphaba scuttled to the far corner of the room, away from the wet. Give me the leather luggage grip, Miss Alphaba, from inside my satchel, there on the shelf, behind the hat boxes. Yes, and I'll secure this until we can get the porter to fix it tomorrow. Alphaba found the strap, but in doing so, the hat boxes tumbled down and three colorful hats rolled out onto the cold floor. While Galinda scrabbled up on a chair to organize the window shut again, Alphaba returned the hats to their boxes. Oh, try it on! Try that one! said Galinda. She meant to have something to laugh at to tell Miss Fanny and Shen Shen about, and so to her way back into their good graces. Oh, I daren't, Miss Galinda, Elphaba said, and went to set the hat away. No, do, I insist, Galinda said, for a lark. I never seen you in something pretty. I don't wear pretty things. What's the harm, said Galinda? Just here, no one else needs to see you. Elphaba stood facing the fire, but turning her head 
on her shoulders to look long and unblinkingly at Galinda, who had not yet hopped down from the chair. The munchkin lender was in her nightgown, a drab sack without benefit of lace edging or piping. The green face above the wheat-gray fabric seemed almost to and the glorious long straight black hair fell right over where her breast should be if she ever if she were ever reveal any evidence that she possessed them alphaba looked like something between an animal and an animal like something more than life but not quite life there was an expectancy but no intuition was that it like a child who had never remembered having a dream being told to have sweet dreams you almost call it unrefined, but not in a social sense, more in a sense of nature not having done its full job with Alphaba, not quite having managed to make her enough like herself. Oh, put the damn hat on, really, said Galinda, for whom, where introspection was concerned, enough was enough. Alphaba obliged, the thing was the lovely rondelle bought from the best milliner in, per in the Pertha Hills. It had orangey swag and yellow lace knit that could be draped to achieve varying degrees of disguise on the wrong head it would look ghastly and glinda expected to have to bite the inside of her lip to keep from laughing it was the kind of super feminine thing boys in a pantomime wore when they pretended to be girls but alphaba dropped the whole sugary plate over her strange pointed head and looked at glinda again from underneath the broad brim Oh, and now you've lied, so go confess to the Unionist minister, said Alphaba. Is there a looking-glass? Of course there is, down the hall in the lavatory. Not there. I'm not going to be seen by those ninnies in this. Well, then, decided Galinda, can you find an angle without hiding the firelight? And look at your reflection in the dark window? They both gazed at the green and flowery specter reflected in watery old glass, surrounded by the blackness driven through with the wild rain beyond. A maple fruit leaf shaped like a star with blunted points or like a heart grown lopsided suddenly whirled out of the night and plastered itself on the reflection in the glass gleaming red and reflected the firelight just where the heart would be or so it seemed from the angle at which Galinda stood entrancing she said there's some strange exotic quality of beauty about you I never thought Surprise, said Alphaba, and then nearly blushed, if darker green constituted a blush. I mean, surprise, not beauty. It's just surprise. Well, what do you know? It's not beauty. Who am I to argue, said Galinda, tossing her curls and striking a pose. And Alphaba actually laughed at that, and Galinda laughed back, partly horrified as she did so, like that of an owl just about to go for a mouse. So what are they on about? Anything interesting? said Galinda. No sense giving up now. There was nothing else to do, and she was too wrought up by the storm to sleep. This one is thinking about good and evil, said Alphaba, whether they really exist at all. Oh, yawn, said Galinda. Evil exists, I know that, and its name is boredom, and ministers are the guiltiest crew of all. You don't really think that. Galinda didn't often stop to consider whether she believed in what she said or not. The whole point of conversation was flow. Well, I didn't mean to insult your father. For all I know, he is an interesting and lively preacher. No, I mean, do you think evil really exists? Well, how do I know what I think? Well, ask yourself, Miss Galinda, does evil exist? I don't know. You say, does evil exist? I don't expect you to know. The look went slanting inward somehow, or was it the hair swinging forward like a veil again? 
Why don't you ask your father? I don't understand. He should know this is his job. My father taught me a lot, Alphaba said slowly. He was very well educated indeed. He taught me to read and write and think and more, but not enough. I just think, like our teachers here, that if ministers are effective, they're good at asking questions to get you to think. I don't think they're supposed to have the answers. Not necessarily. Oh, well... Tell that to our boring minister at home. He has all the answers and charges for them, too. But maybe there's something to what you say, said Alphaba. I mean, evil and boredom. Evil and ennui. Evil and the lack of stimulation. Evil and sluggish blood. You're writing a poem, it sounds like. Why ever would a girl be interested in evil? I'm not interested it's just what the early sermons are all about. So I'm thinking about what they're thinking about. That's all. Sometimes they talk about diet and not eating animals. And then I think of that. I just like to think about what I'm reading. Don't you? I don't read very well. So I don't think I think very well either. Galinda smiled. I dressed to kill though. There was no response from Alphaba. Galinda, usually pleased that she knew the correct way to steer every conversation to a pan to herself was flummoxed. She lamely ventured on, annoyed to having to expend the effort. Well, whatever did those old brutes think about evil then? It's hard to say exactly. They seem to be obsessed with locating it somewhere. I mean, an evil spring in the mountains, an evil smoke, evil blood in the veins, going from parent to child. There was sort of like that early explorers of Oz, except the maps they made were of invisible stuff. Pretty inconsistent one with the other. And where is evil located? Galinda asked, flopping onto her bed and closing her eyes. Well, they didn't agree, did they? Or else, what would they have to write sermons arguing about? Some say the origin of evil was the vacuum caused by the fairy queen Lurline leaving us alone here. When goodness removes itself, the space it occupies corrodes and becomes evil. It maybe splits apart and multiplies, so every evil thing is a sign of the absence of deity. Well, I wouldn't know an evil thing if it fell on me, said Galinda. Their early unionists, who were a lot more learnest than unionists are today, argue that some invisible pocket of corruption was floating around the neighborhood, a direct descendant of the pain the world felt when Lurline left, like a patch of cold air on a warm, still night. A perfectly agreeable soul might march through it and become infected, and then go and kill a neighbor. But... Then, was it your fault if you walked through the patch of badness, if you couldn't see it? There wasn't ever any council of unionists that decided it one way or the other. And nowadays, so many people don't even believe in Lurline. But they believe in evil still, said Galinda with a yawn. Isn't that funny? The deity is passé, but the attributes and implications of deity linger. You are thinking, Elphaba cried. Galinda raised herself to elbows and had enthusiasm in Harumi's voice. I'm about to sleep because this is profoundly boring to me, Galinda said, but Elphaba was grinning from ear to ear. In the morning, Amakach regaled them both with tales of the night out. There was a talented young witch in nothing but stocking pink undergarments adorned with feathers and beads. She sang songs to the audience and collected food tokens in her cleavage from the blushing undergraduate men in the nearer tables. She did a little domestic magic, turning water into orange juice, changing cabbages into carrots, and running knives through a terrified piglet, which spouted champagne instead of blood. They all had a sip, 
A terrible fat man with a beard came on and chased the witch around as if he would kiss her. Oh, it was too funny, too funny. In the end, the whole cast and audience together stood and sang what we don't allow in the public halls. In fact, is for sale in the cheaper stalls. The almost had a riotous good time, every one of them. Really, said Galinda sniffly, the pleasure faith is so, so common. But I see the window broke, said Alma Clutch. I hope it wasn't boys trying to climb in. Are you mad, said Galinda, in that storm? What storm, said Alma Clutch? That doesn't make sense. Last night was as calm as moonlight. Ha, that was some show, said Galinda. You are so caught up in pleasure faith, you lost your bearings, Alma Clutch. They went down to breakfast together, leaving Elphaba still asleep, or pretending to be asleep, maybe. Though, as they walked along the corridor, sun through the broad windows, making racks of light on the cold slate floors, Galinda did wonder about the capriciousness of weather. Was it even possible for a storm to pitch itself against one part of town and overlook another? There was so much about the world she didn't know. She did nothing but chatter about evil, said Galinda to her friends, over buttery brisk with plowfoot jelly. Some inside tap was turned on, and prattle just poured out of her. And girls, when she tried on my hat, I could have died. She looked like somebody's maiden aunt came up out of the grave. I mean, as frumpy as a cow, I endured it only for you, so I could tell you all. Otherwise, I'd have expired with glee on the spot. It was so very much. You poor thing, to have to be our spy and stand the shame of that grasshopper roomy, said Fan devoutly, clasping Galinda's hand. You're too good. Three. One evening, the first evening of snow, Madame Marble held a poetry soiree. Boys from Three Coins and Osmond Towers were invited. Galinda brought out her cerise satin gown with a matching shawl and slippers and an heirloom Gilkenese fan, painted with a pattern of ferns and phoenix. She arrived early to lay claim to the upholstered chair that would best set off her own attire, and she dragged the chair over to the bookshelves so that the light from the library tapers would gently fall on her. The rest of the girls, not only the freshers, but the sophisters and seniors, entered in a whispering clot and arranged themselves on sofas and lounges in Craig Hall's nicest parlor. The boys who came were somewhat disappointing. There weren't that many, and they looked terrified, or giggled with one another. Then the professors and doctors arrived, not just the animals from Craig Hall, but the boy professors, too, who were mostly men. The girls began to be glad they had dressed well, for while the boys were a spotty bunch, the male professors had grave and charming smiles. Even some of the Amas came, though they sat behind a screen at the back of the room. The sound of their knitting needles going at a rapid rate was soothing to Galinda somehow. She knew Alma Clutch would be there. The double doors at the end of the parlor were swept open by the little bronze industrial crab Galinda had met on her first evening at Craig Hall. It had been especially a service for the occasion. You could still detect the cunning scent of metal polish. Madame Morrible then made an entrance, severe and striking in a coal-black cape, which she let drop to the floor. The thingy picked it up and slung it over a sofa back. Her gown was a fiery orange with abalone lake shells stitched all over it. Despite herself, Galinda had to admire the effect, in tones even more unctuous than usual. Madame Morble welcomed the visitors and led polite applause at the notion of poetry and its civilizing effects. Then she spoke in the new verse form sweeping the social parlors and poetry dens of shiz. It is known as the quell. And Madame Morble and her headmistress's smile displayed an impressive assembly of teeth. 
The Quell is a brief poem, uplifting in nature. It pairs a sequence of 13 short lines with a concluding, unrhyming apothem. The reward of the poem is in the revealing contrast between rhyming argument and concluding remark. Sometimes they may contradict each other, but always they illuminate and, like all poetry, sanctify life. She beamed like a beacon in a fog. Tonight especially, a quell might serve as an anodyne to the unpleasant disruptions we have been hearing about in our nation's capital. The boy students looked at least alert, and all the professors nodded, though Galinda could tell none of the girl students had a clue as to what unpleasant disruptions Madame Morrible was prattling on about. The third-year girl at the hammer-strung keyboard clattered out a couple of chords, and the guests cleared their throats and looked at their shoes. Galinda saw Elphaba arrive in the back of the room, dressed in her usual casual red shift, two books under her arm, and a scarf wound around her head. She sank into the last empty chair and bit into an apple just as Madame Morble was drawing in a dramatic breath to begin. Sing a hymn to rectitude, ye forward-thinking multitude, advance in humble gratitude for strictest rules of attitude to elevate the common good in brotherhood and sisterhood. We celebrate authority, fraternity, sorority, united, pressing onward, we restrict the ills of liberty. There is no numosity like power's generosity in helping curb atrocity, bear down on the rod, and foil the child. Madame Morble lowered her head to signify that she was done. There was a rumble of indistinct comments. Galinda, who didn't know much about poetry, thought perhaps this was the accepted way of appreciating it. She grumbled a little bit to Shen Shen, who sat on a straight-backed chair to one side, looking dropsical. Wax from the taper was about to drip onto Shen Shen's silk shoulder white gown with the lemon chiffon swags and ruin it. Most likely, but Galinda decided Shen Shen's family could afford to replace the gown. She kept still. Another, said Madame Marble, another quell. The room grew silent, but a little uneasily so. Alas for impropriety, the guillotine of piety, to remedy society, indulge not to society. In mirth and shameless gaiety, choose soberine sobriety, behave as if the deity approaches in its mystery and greet it with sonority. Let your especial history be built upon sorority, whose virtues do exemplify and social good thus multiply. Animals should be seen and not heard. Again, there was mumbling, but it was of a different nature now. A meanier key, Dr. Dillamon harumped and beat a cloven hoof against the floor and was heard to say, Well, that's not poetry. That's propaganda, and it's not even good propaganda, that. Alphaba sidled over to Galinda's side with her chair under her arm and plunked it down between Galinda and Shen Shen. She put her bony behind on its slatted seat and leaned to Galinda and asked, What do you make of this? It was the first time Galinda had ever been addressed by Alphaba in public. Mortification bloomed. I don't know, she said faintly, looking in another direction. It's a cleverness, isn't it? said Alphaba. I mean, the last line, you could tell by the fancy accent whether it was meant to be animals or animals. No wonder Dillamon's furious. And he was. Dr. Dillamon looked around the room as if trying to marshal the opposition. I'm shocked. Shocked, he said. Deeply shocked, he amended. And he marched out of the room. Professor Lanks, the boar, 
who taught math, left too, accidentally crushing an antique gilded sideboard through trying to avoid stepping on Miss Milla's yellow lace train. Mr. Miko, the ape, who taught history, sat dolefully in the shadows, too confused and ill at ease to make a move. Well, said Madame Morable in a caring tone, one expects poetry, if it is poetry, to offend. It is the right of art. I think she's bonkers, said Alphaba. Galinda found it too horrible. What if even one of the pimply boys saw Alphaba whispering to her? She never hold her head up in society again. Her life was ruined. Shh, I'm listening. I love poetry. Galinda told her sternly, don't talk to me. You're ruining my evening. Elphaba sat back and finished her apple, and they both kept listening. The grumbling and murmuring grew louder after each poem, and the boys and girls began to relax and look around at one another. When the last quell of the evening had knelled to the cryptic aphorism, A Witch in Time Saves Nine, Madame Morble retired to uneven applause. She allowed her bronze servant to administer tea to the guest, and then the girls and finally the almas in a heap of rustling silk and clinking up abalone lake shells she received compliments from the male professors and some of the braver boys and begged them to sit near her so she could enjoy their criticisms do tell the truth i was overly dramatic wasn't i it is my curse the stage called but i chose a life of service to girls she lowered her eyelashes in modesty as her captive audience mumbled a lukewarm protest galinda was still trying to extricate herself from the embarrassing company of Elphaba, who kept on about the quells and what they meant, and if they were any good. How do I know? How should I know? We're first-year girls, remember, said Galinda, yearning to swish over to where Fanny, Milla, and Shen Shen were squeezing lemons into the teacups of a few edgy boys. When your opinion is as good as hers, I think, said Elphaba. That's the real power of art, I think. Not to chide, but to provoke challenge. Otherwise, why bother? A boy came up to them. Galinda thought he was too much to look at, but anything was better than the green leech at her side. How do you do, said Galinda, not even waiting for him to get up his nerve. It's so nice to meet you. You must be from, let's see. Well, I'm from Briscoe Hall, actually, he said, but I'm a munchkin lender originally, as you can tell. And she could, from he hardly came up to her shoulder. He wasn't bad looking for all that. A spun cotton mess of ill-combed golden hair, a toothy smile, a better complexion than some. The evening tunic he wore was a provincial blue, but there were flecks of silver thread running through it. He was trimmed nicely so. His boots were polished, and he stood a little bandy-legged. Feet pointed out. This is what I love, said Galinda, meeting strangers. This is shiz at its finest. I'm Gilkinese. She just managed to keep herself from adding, of course, for she believed it evident in her attire. Munchkinlander girls had a habit of quieter dresses, so understand that they were often mistaken in shiz for servants. Well then, hello to you, said the boy. My name is Master Bach, Miss Galinda of the Arduinus of the Uplands. And you, said Bach, turning to Elphaba, who are you? I'm leaving, she said. Fresh dreams all. No, don't leave, said Bach. I think I know you. You don't know me, said Alphaba, pausing as she turned. However could you know me? You're Miss Alfie, aren't you? Miss Alfie, cried Galinda Galen. How delightful! How do you know who I am, said Alphaba? Master Bach from Munchkinland. I don't know you. You and I played together when you were tiny, said Bach. My father was the mayor of the village you were born in, I think. You were born in Rush Margins and Wynne Hardings, weren't you? 
You're the daughter of the Unionist minister. I forget his name. Frex, said Alphaba. Her eyes looked slanted and wary. Frexbar, the godly, said Bach. That's right. You know, they still talk about him and your mama and the night the clock of the time dragon came to rush margins. I was two or three years old, and they took me to see it. But I don't remember that. I do remember that you were in a place that with me when I was still in short pants. Do you remember her, Gonette? She was the woman who minded us, and Buffy, he is my dad. Do you remember Rush Margins? This is all smoke and guesswork, said Alpha Black. Let us sit here, and you can tell me all about Munchkinland. I am a quiver with curiosity. She perched herself back on the chair in sympathetic colors and looked her very best. Bach sat down and shook his head as if bewildered by the apparition of Alphaba. When Galinda retired that evening, Alphaba was already in bed, blankets pulled up over her head, and a patently theatrical snore issuing forth. Galinda huffed herself into bed with a whump, annoyed that she could feel rejected by the green girl. In the week that followed, much was said about the evening of Quells. Dr. Dillamon interrupted his biology lecture to call for a response from his students. The girls didn't understand what a biological response to poetry might be and sat silent at his leading questions. He finally exploded, Doesn't anyone make the connection between the expression of those thoughts and what's been going on in the Emerald City? Miss Fanny, who didn't believe she was paying tuition in order to be yelled at, snapped back at him, We don't have the tiniest notion what's going on in the Emerald City. Stop playing games with us. If you have something to say, say it. Don't bleat so. Dr. Dillamon stared out the windows and seemed to be trying to control his temper. The students were thrilled with the little drama. Then the goat turned, and in a milder voice than they expected, he told them that the Wizard of Oz had proclaimed bans on animal mobility, effective several weeks ago. This meant that not only that animals were restricted in their access to travel conveniences, lodgings, and public services, the mobility it referred to was also professional. Any animal coming of age was prohibited from working in the professions or the public sector. They were effectively to be herded back to the farmlands and wilds if they wanted to work for wages at all. What do you think Madame Morrible was saying when she ended that quell with the epigram animals should be seen and not heard? asked the goat tersely. Well, anyone would be upset, said Galinda. I mean, any animal. But it's not as if your job is threatened, is it? Here you are, still teaching us. What about my children? What about my kids? Do you have kids? I didn't know you were married. The goat closed his eyes. I'm not married, Miss Galinda, but I might be. Or I may. Or perhaps I have nieces and nephews. They've already been banned effectively from studying at Shiz because they can't hold a pencil to write an essay with. How many animals have you ever seen in this paradise of education? Well, it's true. There were none. Well, I do think it's pretty dreadful, said Galinda. Why would the Wizard of Oz do such a thing? Why, indeed, said the goat. No, really, why? It's a real question. I don't know. I don't know either, the goat turned to his rostrum and shoved some papers this way and that, and was then seeing pawing a handkerchief from a lower shelf and blowing his nose. My grandmothers were milking goats at a farm in Gillikin. Through their lifelong sacrifices and laborers, they purchased the help of a local school teacher to educate me and to take dictation when I went for my exams. Their efforts are about to go to waste. But you can still teach, said Fanny petulantly. 
the thin edge of the wedge my dear said the goat and dismissed the class early galinda found herself glancing over toward alphabo who had a strange focused look as Galinda fled the classroom, Elphaba approached the front of the room where Dr. Dillamon stood shaking in uncontrolled spasms, his horned head bowed. A few days later, Madame Morwell gave one of her occasional open lectures of early hymns and pagan paeans. She called for questions, and the entire assembly was startled to see Elphaba unfold herself from her customary fetal position in the back of the room and address the head. Madame Morwell, if you please, said Elphaba. We never had an opportunity to discuss the quals that you recited in the parlor last week. Discuss, said Madame Morble, with a generous, though shooing wave of the bangled hands. Well, Dr. Lillemont seemed to think they were in questionable taste, given the bans on animal mobility. Dr. Dillamon, alas, said Madame Morble, is a doctor. He is not a poet. He is also a goat. And I might ask you girls if you were ever had a great goat sonneteer or balladeer. Alas, dear Miss Elphaba, Dr. Dillamon doesn't understand the poetic convention of irony. Would you like to define irony for the class, please? I don't believe I can, madam. Irony, some say, is the art of juxtaposing incongruous parts. One needs a knowing distance. Irony presupposes detachment, which, alas, in the case of animal rights, we may forgive Dr. Dillamon for being without. So that phase that he objected to, animals should be seen and not heard. That was ironic, continued Alphaba, studying her papers and not looking at Madame Morble. Galinda and her classmates were enthralled, for it was clear that each of the females at opposite ends of the room would have enjoyed seeing the other crumple in a sudden attack of the spleen. One could consider it in an ironic mode if one chose, said Madame Morble. How do you choose? said Alphaba. How impertinent, said Madame Morble. Well, but I don't mean impertinent. I'm trying to learn. If you, if anyone, thought that statement was true, then it isn't in conflict with the boring bossy bit that preceded it. It's just argument and conclusion, and I don't see the irony. You don't see much, Miss Elphaba, said Madame Marble. You must learn to put yourself in the shoes of someone wiser than you are, and look from that angle. To be stuck in ignorance is to be circumscribed by the walls of one's own modest acumen well it is very sad in one so young and bright she spit out the last word and it seemed to galinda somehow low common on alphabet's skin color which today was indeed lustrous with the effort of public speaking but i was trying to put myself in the shoes of dr dillamon said alphabet almost whining but not giving up in the case of poetic interpretation i venture to suggest it may indeed be true Animal should not be heard, snapped Madame Marble. Do you mean that ironically, said Elphaba, but she sat down with her hands over her face and did not look up again for the rest of the session. Chapter 4 When the second semester began and Galinda was still saddled with Elphaba as a roomie, she made a brief protest to Madame Marble, but the head would allow no shifting, no rearranging. Far too upsetting for my other girl, she said, unless you'd like to be removed to the pink dormitory. Your alma clutch seems, to my watchful eye, to be recovering from the ailments you described when we first met. Perhaps now she is up to overseeing fifteen girls? No, no, said Galinda quickly. There are recurrences from time to time, but I don't mention them. I don't like to be a bother. How thoughtful, said Madame Marble. Bless you, sweet thing. Now, my dear, 
I wonder if you might take a moment, as long as you come in for a chat, to discuss your academic plans for next fall. As you know, second year is when girls choose their specialties. Have you given it any thought? Very little, said Galinda. Frankly, I thought my talents would just emerge and make it clear whether I should try natural science or the arts or sorcery or perhaps even history. I don't think I'm cut out for ministerial work. I'm not surprised that one such as you should be in doubt, said Madame Morrible, which wasn't greatly encouraging to Galinda. But may I suggest sorcery? You could be very good at it. I pride myself on knowing this sort of thing. I'll think about it, said Galinda, though her early appetite for sorcery had waned once she heard what a grind it was to learn spells and worse to understand them. In the event you choose sorcery, it might just might be possible to find you a new roomie, said Madame Marble. Given that Miss Alphaba has already told me her interests lie in the natural sciences. Oh, well then, I certainly will give it a great deal of thought, said Galinda. She struggled with unnamed conflicts within her. Madame Morrible, for all her upper-class diction and fabulous wardrobe, seemed just a tad oh, dangerous, as if her big public smile were composed of the like lancing off knives and lances, as if her deep voice masked the rambling of distant explosions. Galinda always felt as if she couldn't see the whole picture. It was disconcerting. And to her credit, at least, Galinda felt inside herself the ripping apart of some valuable fabric. Was it integrity? When she sat in Madame Morrible's parlor and drank her perfect tea. For the sister here is eventually coming up to shiz, concluded Madame Morrible a few minutes later. As if silence had not intervened in several tasty biscuits. Because there's nothing I can do to stop it. And that, I understand, would be dreadful. You would not like it, the sister being as she is, undoubtedly spending much time in Miss Elphaba's room being tended to. She smiled wanly. A puff of powdery aroma came forward from the flank of her neck, almost as if Madame Morrible could somehow dispense a pleasant personal odor at will. The sister being as she is, Madame Morrible touched and wagged her head back and forth as she saw Galinda to the door. Miserable, really, but I suppose we shall all pull together and cope. This is a sorority, isn't it? The head grasped her shawl and put a gentle hand on Galinda's shoulder. Galinda shivered and was sure Madame Morble felt it. Knew it, but the head never registered a sign of it. But then, my use of sorority, how ironic. Too witty, given a long enough time, of course, a wide enough frame, there is nothing said or done, ever. That isn't ironic in the end. She squeezed Galinda's shoulder blade as if, it were a bicycle handle, almost harder than was proper for a woman to do. We can only hope, haha, <laughs> that the sister comes with some veils of her own. But that's a year yet. Meanwhile, we have time. Think about sorcery, would you? Do. Now, goodbye, my pet, and fresh dreams. Glinda walked back to her room slowly, wondering what Alphaba's sister was like to provoke those catty remarks about veils. She wanted to ask Alphaba, but she couldn't think of how to do it she didn't have the nerve okay you guys that is where i'm gonna end it so we have a little bit more information on uh galinda at this particular point in time and it is galinda because the way it's spelled is g-a-l-i-n-d-a -A. um dr dillamon can't pronounce it so he pronounces it just galinda with no a um in between the g and l now, we are also introduced to another character that's actually a known character, um, Bach. 
we'll find out more about him because the next section of the Gillikinese is titled Box. So we're going to find out a little bit more about him. Right now we know that he is Buffy's son and that he used to be a playmate for Alphaba under Gonat's watch when Nanny would take her to Rush Margins to socialize because she needed to socialize against Malena's um, wishes. So with that being said, I do want to remind you that I'm up for predictions as well as recommendations for new books. You can definitely hit up my Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all at Dark Pegasus, D-R-K-P-E-G-S-U-S. I do stream more frequently right now on Twitch than YouTube, but I am getting my YouTube channel up and running. But if you want a message on any of that, especially when I'm live streaming, just hit me up. Only thing I ask is no spoilers. Um, again, I read this book once before, so I kind of know some of the stuff about it. But at the same time, it's been a long time since I've read it. So a lot of the stuff is still surprising. So I just ask for no spoilers. That way we can all be surprised together. Um, definitely thanks in advance. And if you want to support the podcast or even if you want to support my twitch channel my youtube channel whichever you're more than welcome to do that it's not required but if you do i have cash app as well as venmo again it's still at dark pegasus or the dollar sign dark pegasus d-r-k-p-e-g-s-u-s and just make a note with a hashtag mythical book club or um what you're trying to refer to if you buy a book or want me to read a book if it's for that definitely hashtag that as well and I will definitely look into all those. Again, not required, but greatly appreciated. So I will see you guys next week. Bye.